So we've only got one light left up on this stage, so I'm going to have to stand right here so you can see me and the camera can see me. We're running low. All the lights might go out, but the word of God will still shine brightly. See what I did there? Nice. Um, Welcome back. We're finishing up our sermon series, Big City, Big God, which is a walk through uh, the story of Jonah. And we're finding out how Jonah's story is very similar, almost eerily similar to our story. And for those of you who have not been uh, here all the weeks of this series, we've been asking ourselves a big question every week, a big question that every Christian really needs to wrestle with. I mean, week one, we asked the question, am I willing to be a Christian even if it's uncomfortable? We walk through Jonah's first chapter, where he receives the call from God to go preach to the great city of Nineveh, and he goes the opposite direction, right? He gets on a one-way trip to Tarshish, the end of the known world at that time. On the boat, though, we find out something really interesting about Jonah. He thinks he's a Christian. At least he self-identifies as one, right? When the sailors come to him and say, who are you? He says, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of the sea and the land. And the text actually told us that at that moment, the sailors were terrified because they thought to themselves, hold on, you're going the opposite direction of where that God wants you to go. And we were forced to wrestle with that same idea in our own lives. Are, are we running from God? Would we self-identify as Christian but live a life that looks very different, that goes the opposite direction of God's call for us to go preach to those who need to hear it? In week two, we wrestled with the question, how big is God really? Because it's not enough for us to just have a guilt trip that says, wow, we're running in the wrong way, away from God. In order to run the opposite way, we actually need something that draws us that direction. And so as we heard Jonah's prayer in chapter two of Jonah, we found out how big God really is. It was at that moment that Jonah finally understood what God was all about and what God was doing. Up to this point, he he knew intellectually maybe what God was like or what God was doing, but it hadn't affected his heart until he realized God was the biggest, baddest thing out there, but he wasn't a tyrant. He was a self-sacrificially loving God. Once Jonah gets spit back up onto the land, we wrestled with the question that comes from chapter 3. What is God calling me to do in my life? Because as far as I know, God has not shown up to any of you personally and said, hey, you go preach to this specific city. Go walk the streets and say this message. So what's your calling? Are you willing to see the people in front of you, the ones that God has obviously given you, as those who need to hear the gospel? Well, none of us is a a preacher on the streets like Jonah. We are a preacher in the places that God has put us as he perfectly positions us in this city, in our communities, in our families, to be there for the people who need us. So this week we're going to wrestle with another big question, but I'm not going to tell you what it is until the end. Because the rhetoric of the book of Jonah sets that question up absolutely perfectly, and I want to let the text do itself justice. It's in fact that reason, which is one of three, why I think the book of Jonah is true, that it actually happened. There are a lot of people, biblical critics, who will say the book of Jonah is a fairy tale, a fable. It's supposed to teach a message, but it probably didn't actually happen. But I think chapter 4, along with two other reasons, are the reasons that I can say this story actually happened. So I'll give you those three, just so you know. It doesn't have much to do with the message today, but it's good for you to keep in your back pocket. Um, The rhetoric of Jonah should have stopped at chapter 3. 
Chapter four shouldn't be in the book, at least if you were telling a fable. The story could have actually stopped after chapter one or chapter two, but probably most likely would have ended after chapter three. I mean, think about it. After chapter one, you could have had the story of Jonah, the failed prophet. God called him out to do this ministry in Nineveh. He ran the opposite direction. He was swallowed by a fish, never seen again, the end. Could have been the end of the story, right? Could have stopped after chapter two, God sends Jonah out, Jonah resists the call, but God works on his heart and redeems him and brings him back and forgives his sins. And that would be a a righteous way to read the book, and you could have ended the story there, but God didn't. It could have ended it after chapter 3. Jonah preaches to the great city of Nineveh. All these people repent. They carry out Jonah on their shoulders. Jonah's a national hero. But the story doesn't end there either. It has chapter 4. Which, if, you're, if you were paying attention as I read it, it's a weird chapter. It's a weird conversation between God and Jonah in chapter 4, and we're going to unpack it, but just the fact that it's there makes me believe it, it really happened. If you were just telling a fable to get people to do God's mission, you would have stopped the story before chapter 4, but God didn't. By the way, the other two reasons why I believe the story of Jonah happened, first of all, Uh, the fish is usually the main reason that people would say they don't believe this story happened. There's no way there's a big fish who's going to swallow a person and that fish is going to have this person in his belly for three days and three nights and then spit it out. That's just ridiculous. That stuff doesn't happen. And actually, the way the story is set up, the fish isn't that big of a deal. You know, if we came to this series before we went through the whole book of Jonah, you might have thought, like, the fish should be one of the main characters, But there's only a couple verses actually dedicated to the fish. The author sort of thinks of the fish as an afterthought, which is very atypical if you were writing a fable. If there was a a mythical type creature, you would take the time to explain that creature and sort of like show how it is the way that it is because, well, it's mythical and no one knows what it's like, right? Um, But the author doesn't take the time to do that. But the third and probably most important reason is Jesus thinks this story is true. Um, Jesus quotes this story when he's preaching to the Pharisees in the Gospels. So for those three reasons, I I believe the story is true. Uh, But as we dig into chapter 4, I really do want to focus on the counterintuitive nature of the end of this story and what it's trying to teach us. And so we're going to get two points today. Um, They are in your bulletin if you want to take notes along with us as I go. They are, what is God's mission and how does God's mission work? What is God's mission? Mission. How does God's mission work? We'll read the first four verses of the text again um, to get them in front of you. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That, that is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life. For it is better for me to live, or than to die, than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? So, God relents from his fierce anger against the Ninevites, and Jonah is ticked about it. He's ticked because God is so gracious, right? I mean, that's what he says. I knew that you were this way, God. I knew you were slow to anger, abounding in love, and you relent from calamity. You're always all about this grace thing. God's grace, if you don't know, is the ridiculous idea that what you see in the mirror is not what God sees, right? Like what you see in the mirror, what I see in the mirror is a person full of constant failure 
with skeletons in their closet or maybe skeletons living in their living room right now, people who are hurting other people, maybe physically, maybe emotionally, maybe psychologically, people who haven't used their bodies the way God has asked us to use them, who have cheated and lied and schemed the whole way and deserve nothing but God's wrath and punishment, but that's not what God sees. In the mirror, God sees Jesus. Because the Bible tells us that on the cross, God made a a great exchange. He took all of Jesus' perfection, everything right that Jesus had done, and he put it on you, and he ripped your sin out of you and put it on Jesus so that Jesus would die with it, and you wouldn't have to. So now when God looks at you, he sees everything that pleases him, everything that's right with the world, he sees in you. And that frees you. It frees you from the guilt of your past. It frees you from the need to pull it off, to be enough for everyone and for God, because God has said, you are. You are enough. You're everything I've ever wanted. Like he said about Jesus, you're my son, you're my daughter with whom I'm well pleased. And the unreal thing about it all is he does it just because that's who he is. He is gracious and loving and kind and compassionate and giving. And what he wants more than anything else is to give of himself for you. Now, if you've been going to Cross of Life for a while, you probably knew that. But so did Jonah. And yet when God's grace hit the ground and started affecting other people, Jonah got ticked. You know, Jonah's little rant here, it gets our little Christian hearts riled up a bit, right? That's not how grace works, Jonah. You're an idiot. You should know how grace works. Grace is forgiveness and kindness and love. But are we that different from Jonah? And we may say we know the gospel. We may actually even know the gospel. Jonah certainly knew the gospel. You're the God who relents, who doesn't let calamity come against people, who is slow to anger, abounding in love. I mean, he recites the name that God gave to Moses in the Old Testament. When God describes himself, Jonah gives a perfect rendition of it. And yet he can't stand God actually doing that. And I think sometimes neither can we. We can't stand the idea that grace is so free. Let me see if I can give you a couple examples of how this works. Let's say there's somebody who has done something absolutely terrible against you. They've hurt you in some way, taken something that's yours, said something about you they shouldn't have said. Is your first reaction to know that God covers up sin with his own blood, and so you should strive to cover that person's sin up and keep it between the two of you so that their reputation isn't hurt, so that no one else knows about the failure that they had against you and deal with that sin one-on-one together? Or is your reaction to make sure at least one person knows how bad that person is? Or maybe a couple people should know Does it just irritate you when that person is walking around and no one else knows how bad they actually are and the bad things that they've done? You know, but no one else does. Maybe it's because you know grace, but you aren't functionally living grace. What if it's um, not a sinful thing, but just a difference of opinion, a difference of culture? And by culture, I don't necessarily mean ethnicity. I just mean different way of, of viewing the world, of acting in in your life. So like, 
Maybe, you know, you're a woman and you're dealing with a man or vice versa, or you're a Gen Xer or a baby boomer and you're dealing with a millennial or a Gen Zer, or you're, you know, from this socioeconomic status dealing with somebody lower or higher than you, whatever. And, and your, your worldviews, your ideals come into conflict. Like, they don't do things the way that you want them done. How do you deal with that? Is your first reaction to say, well, God was willing to actually change his existence from being spirit in heaven to taking on human flesh to step into my broken world that he made perfect but I broke, so now he has to deal with the broken version of it just in order to save me. So I might as well think that adjusting for other people is a good idea. Or do you think, nope, I got to get them to do things my way. So you may know grace, but you aren't functionally living it. One more example. Uh, the, the phrase, more Christian. You say someone is, I, I, that person is more Christian or I'm more Christian, or you should be more Christian. Frankly, brothers and sisters, that phrase needs to be damned to hell. Because there is no such thing as more Christian. There are those who believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and those who don't. These are Christians, and these are not. And the Christian, who has been their whole life faithful to God, has been reading their scriptures every day, has been faithful in their church attendance, is just as much Christian as the one who showed up five minutes to the party, five minutes ago to the party. And who may not know how to live the Christian life, may not know the difference between Hezekiah and Malachi, but they're still just as much Christian. And if that grinds you a little bit, that that person, despite the way they live, despite how much less they know than me, they're just as valuable as me to my church and to God, you might know grace, but you aren't functionally living it. So grace is an offensive concept to the human being. Because everything about our psyche says that it should all be cause and effect. I do this and I receive benefits. I push the right buttons, the vending machine gives me what I want. And we treat God the same way, but God doesn't work like that. God is gracious to every one of us. And he expects us to live with that same type of grace. Now, none of us, because we are imperfect, are going, to able, are going to be able to actually live completely graciously all the time. But that's why God's mission isn't just for people out there. God's mission is for people in here. If you're taking notes with us, it's your first fill-in-the-blank for today. God's mission is the gospel. And the gospel isn't just for bad people out there. It's for bad people in here. And it's for the people who think they're good in here. So the gospel is the totally counterintuitive, anti-human, natural thinking way that God operates. He gives and he gives and he doesn't ask questions. He does all the work for you and says, simply believe it. That's it. No candles to light, no prayers to say, no lifestyle that you have to keep up. Just free grace. That's how God wanted to teach Jonah what his mission actually was. To show him how willing he was to forgive even the Ninevites, people who were, uh, by all accounts, a terrorist state. 
They were the biggest, baddest kids on the block because, well, they didn't just destroy their enemies, they humiliated them. And maybe we, like Jonah, can think of the city around us the same way. We can think to ourselves, man, look at all the sin that happens in this world around us. People taking pride in their sin, showing it off for everyone to see how bad they are. Or maybe we can see people of other worldviews or other faiths and say, you know, their lifestyle or their worldview is going to be destructive to our society. They're so bad. But God's message to us is the same as his message to Jonah. I'm a God of compassionate, gracious love, slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness. I relent when there's confession. And so hopefully, as we see that grace starting to work on those of us who have run from God, we start to realize how freely we can give that grace to other people. So that's God's mission, the gospel. Now let's see how it works. The text continues in verse 5. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat down in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. So notice how God deals with Jonah. Jonah does not functionally live the gospel. He may intellectually know it, right? But, but he doesn't functionally live it. So what does God do to help him functionally live the gospel? Well, he doesn't preach him a sermon, which would be how I would normally deal with it. Uh, God deals with it differently. God gives him a leafy plant. So Jonah goes out to the outskirts of the city to watch and see what God is going to do. Maybe if God's not going to destroy the city like I think he should, he's at least going to bring some like cataclysm on them so they get their act together, right? If only God would bring like a little bit of discomfort into their lives so that they would understand that they need to change the way that they are, that would be good. That's what Jonah's waiting for. But, but God gives him a leafy plant to cover his head from the hot Iraqi sun. Nineveh is in modern-day Iraq. 115 degrees some of those summer days with the sun beating on Jonah's bald head. It would be really nice to have a leafy plant like that. And Jonah was exceedingly happy, right? That's what the text tells us. He's so happy about this plant. But then God provides a worm that chews through the plant and the plant withers and dies and Jonah's left out in the sun again. What's God doing? Can you see it? He's helping Jonah understand that Jonah is no different from those people in Nineveh. Sure, Jonah might not be a terrorist. He might not be a murderer like the Ninevites. But he's exactly the same way. He's an idolater. So God shows Jonah how much of an idolater he actually is. He gives him a leafy plant, a plant that grows up overnight, and immediately Jonah is enthralled with it. This is the greatest thing ever. I have this plant that covers me from the hot sun. And you could look at your life, right, and, and say there are some really amazing blessings that God has given me that to some extent I, I might even be enthralled with. 
wow, I live in a country that's one of the richest in the world where it's possible for me to have a regular job with a regular paycheck. I'm able to have a home that only I live in that's air-conditioned. I'm able to have multiple vehicles to get me around to all the places I want to go. I've been given a spouse or kids or a church or a pastor or or disposable income, like all these great blessings that God has given us. And those things should make us happy. God wants to bless us. But what happens when they go away? What happens when, like Jonah, the leafy plant withers, whatever your leafy plant is? Are you as angry as Jonah? If any of those good things that God has given you have taken up residence in the place that only God should be in your heart, it'll feel a lot like Jonah felt. The concept of idolatry is simply that God gives us good things and we take those good things and we make them into ultimate things. We make them into the things that define who we are, that give us peace, security, and happiness. And while it's very subtle, this happens to every one of us. We take the good things that God has given us and make them into ultimate things. Maybe you've done this with a relationship. Either a relationship that you're in or a relationship you want to be in. You know, if only my marriage was happy, then I would be happy. If we could just get along, if he would just do what I want, if she would just stop nagging me, then we'd be happy. Or maybe if you're single, if only I could find Mr. Wright, Miss Wright, then I'd be happy. Maybe you've done this with your kids, if you have kids. My kids got to grow up and and be the best, or at least be better than most. And so I'm going to do whatever it takes to, to get them over that hump so that everyone will notice them, everyone will know them, and everyone will look at me and say, wow, you're a pretty good parent. Maybe you do this with control of things in your life. I just... I want to be in charge of things. And while it's not wrong to to want to take control of things, when that control becomes the ultimate thing, like if I don't have control of this situation, then I'm going to be unhappy, I'm going to be dissatisfied. Well, all those things, they've become idols. And the crazy thing about idols is if you force them into the place that only God can be in your life, you're going to break them. Think about your relationships. Maybe specifically a romantic one. If you are so convinced that you will be happy or peaceful or secure if you get the right relationship, you're going to do one of two things and both are going to break it. You're either going to be so picky, so over the top, that you're never actually going to get married or find somebody. Or you're going to get so desperate that eventually you'll take anyone and they may not be the right person. Same with your kids. If you put them into the place that only God can be, you're going to break them. You're either going to overparent them because they need to be perfect, so you're going to stifle them and change them at every every single moment of their life, or you're going to underparent them and just let them do whatever they want because you can't stand the idea that they wouldn't be happy. What if it's control? If you're taking control and putting it into the place that only God can be, are you going to break yourself or someone else. Because on the one hand, you will be prone to perfectionism. 
You'll have to make everything work out right the way that you want it to, and eventually it will completely exhaust you and tear you down. Or you'll expect everyone else to be perfect, and you will push everyone away. See, these good things that God has given us, if they take up residence in the place where only God can be, they won't work, and we will break them or break ourselves. And God says that's just as bad as what the Ninevites were doing. Jonah, you think you're so much better than the Ninevites? You're pretty much a product of circumstances. Honestly, Jonah, if you were part of their culture, you would probably be doing the same thing. It just so happens you were born into the family you were born into, into the culture you were born into. So you learned at an early age that some of these things are probably not the best for society. But let's be honest, Jonah, what's down deep in your heart is just as bad as what's in their heart. And that's where all of us ought to be as well. To think for one second that our regular church attendance or our good parenting or our seemingly intact marriage or our orthodoxy as a church body sets us up any higher than anyone else in the world, we deserve to have that thing eaten through by a worm and wither and die. See, God wants to get at Jonah's idolatry and your idolatry because what he's going to say next is going to set you on the right path. You heard what he said. Verses 10 and 11 of the text, right? He says to Jonah, You've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? God cares about Nineveh. But he knows that the only way he's going to get Jonah to care about Nineveh is if he takes him down to the bottom and says, the only thing that allows you to go on and them to go on and really everyone to go on is my grace. Once you understand that that's my concern, my primary concern, then you can start living that way. Helping people find their right hand and their left. Did you hear that phrase and think, what on earth does that mean? (laughs) These people don't know their right hand from their left? Does that mean like they can't figure out which one is right or left? I know that's a struggle for some of you, but actually, it's a total sidebar. Also, I just found out that um, infants, they don't know their left hand from their right. So like if they're looking one way, they can see their hand and move it, but the other one stays still like this. That's a crazy thing. I just found out because I had a baby. Um, That's not what God's talking about, though. Um, What God is talking about is the understanding of how things work in the world. Right? So like a worldview that can take any action or reaction or situation and put it into the correct box. So as a Christian, you're able to do this. As a, one, as a person who understands, first of all, who God is and then what God has done for you in the person of Jesus Christ, you can do this. But if you don't have that, then in a sense, you don't know your right from your left. You're going to try to force any situation, action or reaction into another box that it doesn't really fit in. Um, so let me explain how this works. Let's say something just really terrible happens to you, just a disaster of some sort. As a Christian, you're able to put that in the correct box. It may not be easy, but you can say, look, I know evil is in the world because all people are sinful, and God allows evil into my life sometimes to turn my eyes back to him so that I focus more fully on him, right? And you can put it in that box, and it can make sense. It may not be easy, but it makes sense. But if you don't have that worldview, if you don't know God, then you're scrambling about trying to figure out how to handle a terrible disaster like that. 
And it reminds me of a, a woman I pastored for a while um, who we were just chatting about, you know, the way life is, and, and she could not get past the idea that uh, there are really, really evil people in the world. So she, she was like, I don't understand how, you know, there can be child abusers and serial killers and people who, like, drive their, you know, car up on the sidewalk and run people over. Like, how does this happen? As a Christian, I and you can say, well, I know all people are born sinful and therefore all have the propensity to do that kind of evil. And probably what stops any one of us from doing those evil things is, well, we had good parents maybe, or we grew up in a culture that, that said that that's a bad thing to do. But it doesn't stop the evil, right? Think about this. If you have two people struggling with hate, but one of them is a teenage girl from the suburbs and the other is a man from the streets, probably going to enact that hate a little bit differently, right? Girl, teenage, in the suburbs, if she hates a girl in her class, what's she going to do? Probably gossip about her, maybe post about her on social media, right? Not good, but also, like, not that destructive for society. Man on the streets, struggles with hate, maybe he kills somebody. Same sin, right? Circumstance is the only thing that determined the outcome. Every one of us just is evil, right? But if you don't understand that that's how God has uh, shown us our sin, that all of us are sinful from birth, and you don't have a box to put in the terrible evil that people do in the world. You have to say, well, it's, you know, it's a, it's a product of bad education, or, you know, bad social structure, social injustice, and not to say that those things aren't true, that we should be educating, that we should be working against social injustice, that's not what I'm saying, but you can't actually pin it down to its real source. Let's see if I can give you another example. Um, Make sure I get it right here. Yeah, if you want to be something, like you want to you matter in this life, you want to do something that benefits society, if you're not a Christian, you don't have a Christian worldview, then you really have no place to, to ground that desire. Because if you don't have a worldview that includes an eternal afterlife, then what you do in this world maybe matters for a few minutes, but ultimately you're going to die and everyone you serve is going to die and ultimately the whole society is going to burn up because we're going to lose the ozone layer or whatever. And there's going to be no people to benefit from any of your work ever, so what's the point of getting up in the morning and walking out the door? But you as a Christian, you have a, a different worldview, right? You understand that there is an eternal afterlife that your actions matter for. And so you have a reason to be a good plumber or a good banker or a good pastor, or a good mother, th those things matter because, well, they last into eternity. God's concern is for the great city of Nineveh, for people who don't know their right from their left, who don't have an understanding of the way things really are, who are walking around at least spiritually blind. And then he asks Jonah, do you care about those people? You know, it's like the Bible breaks the fourth wall right here. Because that last verse, verse 11 of the text that we read, that's the end of the book of Jonah. Should I not be concerned about the great city of Nineveh, which has over 120,000 people who don't know their right from their left, and many animals? The end. Next page, not Jonah chapter 5. The book of Micah. Just the next book in the Bible. And you might wonder, like, what did Jonah say? What did Jonah do? That's not the point. The Bible's breaking the fourth wall here. You know the phrase, breaking the fourth wall? 
Like if you watch a TV show or a movie and a character in the TV show or the movie stops looking at the other characters but looks directly at the camera and speaks to you, if you like watch House of Cards, maybe, Netflix, it's like that, or for my Gen Xers, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, right? Talks directly to the camera. The Bible kind of does that here. It's like God and Jonah are having this conversation, right? Jonah's all ticked off because God's not doing what, God, what he wants God to do, and God is trying to be gracious. And God says, shouldn't I not be concerned about this great city? And then they both turn towards you and wait for you to answer. So do you. God said to Jonah, I care about Nineveh. Do you? Jonah said, no, I'd rather go the opposite direction. God said to Jonah, I care about Nineveh. Do you? Jonah said, not really, but I'll preach whatever you tell me to preach, fine. God said to Jonah, I I care about Nineveh. Do you? I'm just really hot, okay? What about you, Cross of Life? God says, I care about Toronto. I care about Mississauga. Do you? Well, yeah, but not enough to, like, give 10% of my income. I mean, then I would probably have to cancel Netflix and not get the next iPhone. God says, I, I care about Toronto. I care about Mississauga. Do you? Yeah, but, goodness sakes, I haven't been recognized for the way I've been volunteering for the last couple of years. I care about Toronto. Do you? Well, only if the church does things the way that I want them done. God's question is directly aimed at your heart. And I don't know what the answer is for you, but I know that he cares about this big city. And he wants you to be part of his mission. To give the gospel to the people here who don't know their right hand from their left. And so we're forced to answer the big question for today. Are we concerned with this great city? Whether we are or not is not going to change God's ability to save people in it. There are other churches, there are other Christians, and God is capable of working in amazing ways despite us. So we have a choice. Do we want to get on board? Or do we want to spend our time focusing on the leafy plants? Whatever the leafy plants are, whether the leafy plants are at home, whether the leafy plants are in here, if we're going to spend our time focusing on them, God is going to take them away from us until we finally realize that none of those things can take the spot in our heart where only he can live. But when he takes up residence there, then we will, be lear- we will learn to be concerned with this great city. The last fill in the blank, if you're taking notes with us today. God's mission works when we care about what God cares about. And if you search the scriptures and find out what God actually cares about when it comes to your life, when it comes to church, then you'll be able to be part of his mission. And I pray that for this congregation and I, I pray it for myself. Because I am one prone to wander, prone to run, prone to begrudgingly do what God asks me to do. And I would imagine many of you are the same way. But God's grace is so free 
that he doesn't look at the past week or the past year or the past decade to see your track record, to see if you're worthy of his forgiveness and his purpose in your life. No, he freely gives it to you just like he gave it to Nineveh and just like he gave it to Jonah. I pray when that melts your heart, you, you take advantage of the opportunities God has put in front of you. To understand that being a little bit uncomfortable for the faith, it's a good thing. Being willing to sacrifice for the faith, it's a good thing. Being willing to preach boldly, it's a good thing. Because what Jesus did when he came to this earth was get really uncomfortable, go to a cross and say, yep, worth it for them, and go the whole way preaching clearly exactly what God said. Let's be a church that represents that Savior. Amen.